Hey everyone, Abraham here. Apologize again, getting this out a little bit late. I promise we are now back on track. That this has all been taken care of, so that won't happen again. So please enjoy this episode. This is sort of a part three. I'm not sure if we're going to call it a part three, but you know, it's the the last in our journey talking about hearing and specifically talking about today, tinnitus and auditory processing disorder. So hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And Ryan O. And Shane. And so today we're going to, uh, we just started with an annoying high-pitched sound. Um, and if you could not hear that, then probably go get your hearing checked. Because I definitely picked a tone that was within the range that of normal hearing for most people. So if you thought that you just heard silence, then... I'll be back then, I guess. <laughs> either you're listening to something so loud that you couldn't hear what we were saying, in which case maybe... Restart the episode. Yeah. Come on. I don't know. Whatever. Or you have a hearing loss. Either way, what we're actually talking about is something called tinnitus. This is a follow-up to the episode that we did uh, just recently on hearing in which we interviewed two audiologists. And however, this conversation was intended to stand alone, the one that we're having today, uh, to cover the topics of tinnitus, which is also sometimes pronounced tinnitus and probably something else, tinnitus maybe. And also something called auditory processing disorder. So this isn't really a part two. It kind of is a part two. Um, the way we normally do a part two is we have those two are part of really a long discussion that's split into two pieces. But instead, these were two separate topics. Now, we are using some of the same clips from the interviews that were done. And that was intentional because as I had those audiologists available, I wanted to make use of their expertise to talk about the subject. And so we, uh, we're, we'll pull in some of those same interviews so you'll recognize some of their voices. And then they have the same three people who were on that last episode. But this is a different topic. So if you didn't hear the other one, that's okay. I still think you should go listen to it if you haven't heard it because it's good. Um, but otherwise, you can still listen to this one and you'll have all the context you need to understand it. So today we're going to tackle some of the weirder parts of hearing or the impediments around hearing, uh, how they work, how they're tested. There's a question that I wanted to ask is, have you ever had experience with tinnitus or tinnitus? Well... I, I have. And for me, it's very occasional. It doesn't happen more than a handful of times per year, probably. And to me, it sounds like a bell ringing, a really uh, loud bell. Have you ever experienced tinnitus, Shane? Yeah, I think playing in bands for years and years and years will do that. You'll leave with a ring in your ears to some degree, but like it seems to persist over a period of time, I've noticed. Uh, I always thought it was just the cilia dying in your ears, right? I'm not entirely sure that if that's accurate at all, actually. I think I think no. <laughs> Let's start with tinnitus, and we should always start by reviewing a definition of tinnitus. And from the Mayo Clinic website, they say specifically, quote, tinnitus is the perception of noise or ringing in the ears. Uh, A common problem, tinnitus affects about one in five people. That is insane. Yeah. One That's in pretty five. significant. Yeah, that, and that those were numbers that shocked me too. How many people are affected by it? So we're talking about twenty percent of people, according to the the data that are available. That's a huge proportion of the population that experiences tinnitus. It is defined essentially as any sound that is produced in the brain that didn't used to be there. Oh, just to remind you, this is the voice of Dr. Brenda Greenhouse. I see probably eight to 10 tinnitus patients a day. So it's very common, unfortunately. Tinnitus is known as um, a sound in the ears. It's usually perceived as a sound in the ears. Um, however, it can be, you know, I hear it in my head. I hear it um, over here on the left. You know, it's it's not actually necessarily the ears. So it can be very confusing. But just think of tinnitus as I have a sound 
in my ears right now. You know, I, I hear something. And it it's is, produced in the brain. It is produced it's, in the brain. It's not created from the ears. It is not. And the reason that we know that is back in the 40s, some probably ear, nose, and throat doctor, I honestly don't know who came up with what they thought was a brilliant idea, came up with the idea of cutting the eighth hearing nerve so people wouldn't hear their tinnitus anymore if it was driving them that crazy. And cutting the eighth hearing nerve means you go deaf. And people were willing to go deaf in order to stop hearing the ringing. And the tragedy was... They didn't stop hearing the ringing. But they stopped hearing everything else. They stopped hearing everything else. That sucks. Yeah, it really does. And so we know that it is actually produced in the brain somewhere, but it is not produced in the cochlea. Um, it might be produced in the auditory cortexes. That's entirely possible, but we don't know that for sure. First time I remember experiencing it was when there was a Nickelback album that came out. <laughs> <laughs> it comes back. <laughs> Look at this turn, that is. <laughs> that was super oh, good oh man all right <laughs> sorry to interrupt more of that please <laughs> all right so, so yeah you have experienced it ryan yeah no interesting all of us have jammed in bands to some extent me the least out of y'all um for sure but i've always listened to really loud things earbuds are always in um I get super freaked out thinking about it, but I always delay that for a later problem in life, which is not smart. I'm like, future Ryan will worry about this problem. <laughs> but I have, in like very, very quiet scenarios, uh, usually it's like a very, I live in a really quiet, like super quiet neighborhood. So if everything's off in the house and like roommates are gone and stuff, then I can hear something when I'm falling asleep like consistently. It's nothing that annoys me or drives me crazy at all. Uh, but I notice it more when it's just like dead silence around me. Yeah, interesting. Not as we're talking and going about and all that. Sure. I think. Do you ever have the experience of just like a swelling, ringing, or buzzing that just sort of comes out of nowhere and it sort of almost mutes the sound in one of your ears for just a maybe 20 seconds or so? Yeah, occasionally. But it's like a, maybe a handful of times in a year, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah. What does yeah. what your sound like when you hear it? A really high-pitched, like, similar to the last episode, the weird sounds I was making. It's like a wee. Okay. But it kind of like pops out of nowhere, like you were saying. Okay. The intermittent, I tell people not to worry about too much yet. If it stays for a day and doesn't go away, uh, that could indicate some damage to your ear that may not reverse. But you can imagine hearing that what some people can go through. Uh, sometimes that's what they hear all day, every day in both ears. And it can, it can be very, very disturbing. Mine is very quiet. Interestingly, it seems that tinnitus is not something that you just have. And again, according to the Mayo Clinic, it's not a condition itself. It's a symptom of an underlying condition, maybe something related to age-related hearing loss, ear injury, or circulatory system disorder. So isn't that, I mean, I just think that's pretty interesting to think about a lot of people who experience this tinnitus and now look at this from the perspective that you're actually experiencing the symptom of something else. And it's not that you just have tinnitus as a condition, but you have tinnitus because there's something else going on that has caused that tinnitus. Hmm. Yeah, I always thought mine was related to just ear injury just from loud noises. So 
I mean, it probably is. And so that's, yeah. yeah, And that's actually the the point is that what are the things that that can cause tinnitus? What we do know about tinnitus is that it is very, very commonly associated with uh, hearing loss of any kind. Very, very, very commonly associated with noise-induced hearing loss. Number one cause is noise exposure, which I blame on my brother for me. He is a musician and I probably went to hundreds, if not thousands of concerts, never wore earplugs. And I don't remember (laughs) a time in my life I didn't have buzzing in my ears. It's, It's so normal to me. I went to grad school and I realized, wait, people hear silence? Like this is my silence. I thought that's what everybody heard, which is good because that means I don't alert to it. I don't, I'm not bothered by it. I just, I know it's there. But noise exposure is the number one cause. It's also, interestingly, associated with wax impaction. So that's a type of tinnitus that will go away if you get the wax cleaned out of your ears, which is one of the very few types of tinnitus that can be cured. Another being spinal injuries, such as like from car accidents and such. Other things can happen. Head injury. Um, I see a lot of patients who got in a car accident. It's very unfortunate. No, you didn't hurt your ears, but you got whiplash and you hurt your spine. And now there's something going to the brain that is affecting the auditory cortex. Why? Because there's so many receptor areas. So you could have had a mild brain injury, head injury, something. And now you have ringing in the ears because that part of the brain is interpreting damage as a sound. And it's very frustrating because we can't find it. <laughs> uh, we can't, you know, give you a magic pill to, to get rid of it once once it's happened. But that can that can occur. Um, so car accident, head injury. And some medications can cause it too. So one of the biggest ones that everyone will know is chemotherapy. So it is the lesser of the two evils. I would probably treat my cancer versus risk, you know, versus saying I don't want tinnitus, but very, very common. As you can imagine, that drug is killing many things in your body. Um, And it it is very often that you will have tinnitus after treatment. Sometimes it will go away. Sometimes it won't. can also cause hearing loss that can be reversible once the treatment stops. We just never know. We can track those patients during treatment if they want to. Hearing loss in general can, but I'm always surprised how many patients I have hearing loss that don't have tinnitus. So I I mean, it is correlated, of course, but I have no hearing loss and I have tinnitus. So um, you can certainly have it with no hearing loss as well. Unfortunately, tinnitus often and almost always accompanies Meniere's disease. You can also have a brain tumor and have tinnitus. So if you start to Google it, you're going to get nervous and think that you have a brain tumor. um, And you're going to come in and see the audiologist and say, I just want to make sure I don't have a brain tumor. And we can ask for that. Um, But anyways, that is very rare. But yes, it it can happen. You can have a tumor on your eighth nerve that can cause terrible ringing, usually one ear. So if you have one-sided tinnitus that doesn't go away, I I would get treated. I would get evaluated. Some little things that can make it fluctuate, just as a side note, usually you already have the tinnitus, but stress and caffeine are the two number one things to make it change. But I'm not giving up my coffee. Y'all? <laughs> nope. Yeah. No, my ears can ring sometimes. <laughs> I'll tolerate it. So the more caffeine you have in one day, yep, you might uh, have your ear ring later this afternoon. And it's it's just a slight reaction to that. Um, stress is so terrible for our bodies in every way possible. So I think it's no surprise that then it could make your tinnitus seem worse one day if you do suffer from tinnitus. Um, but it's usually temporary. You know, it's going to kind of wean down to the normal level, hopefully later on. Uh, ear infections can cause a ring. You know, that's going to be temporary. Um, those are kind of the big ones. Uh, can tinnitus cause hearing loss? No, it cannot. Okay. Yeah, another interesting thing about tinnitus is that while some people and maybe a lot of people experience this as a uh, as a sound in their head um, some people seem to perceive it instead as sort of a sound that's happening inside their ears okay 
Um, but it actually does not happen in the ears at all, even though it might be perceived that way. It really does only happen in the brain. And again, is a symptom of something else, uh, which can be damaged to the ear or other things. And in today's episode, side tangent of science is neat. <laughs> what's also super interesting is that some people report hearing very different sounds from one another when they experience tinnitus. So for you, Abraham, what does it sound like? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this, mine sounds like it's almost like right after someone hits a bell. So not the chime part of it, but the decay sound. But rather than when you hit a bell, the sound gets quieter. For me, it gets much louder really quickly. And it usually will maintain for just a few seconds, and then it'll die off pretty fast. Um, and how, However, some people report hearing uh, a buzzing sound. is actually one of the most common. And, you know, people describe their tinnitus in so many different ways. People say it's chirping. They'll say it's a high-pitched squeal. They'll say it's a buzzing sound. Some people say it sounds like cockroaches. Um, but I would say the most common I hear is buzzing, hissing, white noise. Or crickets chirping. Cicadas. You know, it is a sound, but it's usually not this like nice, like ding. You know, it's not a ring in, in your ears. Mine is a buzzing. And I've actually had a few people who said it was music. And I'm like, well, you are one of the lucky ones if you hear music as tinnitus. So a lot of people have these, you know, 30 to 60 seconds, usually one ear, you know, the hearing cut drops, right. you hear this ringing and you just go, oh God, please let this go away soon. And it does really sound like a ring. I have that. I also have constant buzzing in my ears. That's ne That never goes away for me. So I consider that my tinnitus. So there's a lot of different ways you can experience this. Um, and it comes down to the individual, but it can also happen not only in one ear or both ears, like that sort of stuff changes too, right? Right. It's usually also very brief unless you have a chronic tinnitus, which can happen from some of those other things we mentioned, like um, hearing loss and uh, head trauma, that sort of thing. So with all that, you've got all these different experiences, you've got different, you know, etiologies of this, right? Like it could be any of these things. And it also, as, as far as that goes, that people experience it uh, differently in terms of how psychologically challenging it is, right? So everybody, not only do they experience that sound differently, but how they cope with it is pretty different. Yeah, so most people report that their tinnitus, while annoying, doesn't really cause them much distress. The majority of people I test, I have tinnitus, it doesn't really bother me, I just wanna make sure nothing's wrong, right? Most people, thankfully, once they're tested and, and everything's okay, that's kind of peace of mind, right? Okay, this is a sound in my head, I hate to tell you, it's probably not going to go away. It affects the limit system. You've got to get your brain to alert to it less and less if you can. Tinnitus can affect people in many different ways. I have a lot, a lot of veterans who have had tinnitus since they were in the military uh, because of all the noise they were exposed to while in the military. And they actually, almost all of them will say, oh, it's been around so long, I just don't pay any attention to it anymore. So for them, it's no longer an issue. However, some reactions that people can have to their, their experience of tinnitus can range from seeking medication to even considering suicide. But I've got people who'll tell me it gives them headaches, that it'll keep them up at night, that it's hard for them to sleep, that it's so annoying it drives them crazy. So it can really affect people in an emotional way that can be pretty hard for people to take. Um, and that obviously is, is a difficult situation for people to be in. So, you know, it definitely happens that it can really cause them some rather serious emotional problems. There's a tinnitus reaction questionnaire where, you know, you kind of go through gauge, you know, how 
how much is this affecting a person? I've had a gentleman tell me he wanted to kill himself because of it. And that's really hard. Um, it is rare, thankfully, you know, I, I referred him to psychiatry, you know, saying, you know, yeah, we can help treat your tinnitus, but you, you also need, you know, to, to get some help elsewhere that's out of my scope of practice, because we need to treat this as a whole. This is affecting your whole life. And, you know, and that, thankfully that doesn't happen very often, but there are, there are times, unfortunately, where that person reacts so negatively that it can be a really stressful thing to add to life. And um, you just really have to try to say it's there and you've got to accept that. And, and now here's what we need to do about it. And we have a clip, right? Yeah. On this from uh, talking with Dr. Steve Hayes. Yep. It's my closest I can get to a chronic pain experience, which is I have tinnitus really loud, medically diagnosed. It's huge. Too much punk rock. I was a big, you know, Sex Pistols on on. I mean, I lived in Greensboro. They would they would come from the smaller bands, some good ones, you know, Circle Jerks, X, etc. Had we had to go from Atlanta, and we didn't know any of these bands, but I had to go from Atlanta to D.C. for their for their their weekend gigs. So on Wednesdays in Greensboro, the vans pulled up, and these gigantic speakers and amps came out. And you too could be in front of 170 decibels of mm-hmm. some screaming, tatted up lunatic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like and I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, well, now I'm almost 70, and guess what I have inside my head? <laughs> you know? Well, so I've been working for 30 years on these methods, you know. And I, the, my ears start ringing, and they're ringing more, ringing more, ringing more. What am I going to do? Go to the audiologist, give me this habituation-based thing, put on noise makers in your house. You know, you habituate to the noise. It's getting worse, getting worse. And then I catch myself thinking, I should just shoot myself. If, if I just shoot myself, the noise will go away. And then the second voice comes, uh, dude, that's a suicidal thought. Uh, maybe you should apply your life's work to it. <laughs> it took me three years for it even occurred to me. Within one day, it was 50% handled. Within two days, 90% handled. In one week, it was 100% handled. And this is eight years ago, seven years ago. We've now done randomized trials on it. Do my ears still ring? Yes, hugely. Except maybe not in this sense. In this second, in this moment, they're ringing. I think it's been two weeks since they've been ringing, except if I ever thought about it or looked, they'd be ringing. Of course they're ringing. They're ringing yeah. 24-7. What yeah. else are they going to do? Right. It's just I don't care, and you can't make me care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. So what can we do about tinnitus? There's sound therapy to then, you know, help. we'll kind of go into that with treatment. But what can we do to get you to be less stressed by that sound? We have to shift it from bothersome to non-bothersome, and that's going to make quality of life better. So... Unfortunately, there aren't really many cures, quote, out there for tinnitus per se, although there are some treatments. Steps to reduce the underlying cause can also at least prevent the tinnitus from getting worse. Sometimes it will simply go away on its own, but this should never be taken as a given. And sometimes it's tested with like a like an MRI or a CT scan. So if you're not familiar with those concepts, go ahead and check out episode 60 of Why We Do What We Do to get a little bit more. Or episode five. Right, where we covered MRIs. Yeah. Let's jump into the actual treatments then. I've heard that some of these are really interesting. So 
About the only thing we've been able to come up with to treat tinnitus is a behavioral therapy, which you'll be interested in, where what we do is we uh, use tinnitus masking hearing aids that generate a sound that's supposed to cover up the ringing in your ears. It's called tinnitus retraining therapy, in which an audiologist or an otolaryngologist uh, works with the individual to find a sound that is similar to the tinnitus sound that they're experiencing. So you can actually do a tinnitus evaluation. It's kind of cool. So usually the tinnitus is associated with um, an area of the ear that has damage. So if I do an audiogram and maybe they have, you know, a little bit of a drop at 4,000 hertz, it's pretty amazing how I will ask them to try to pitch match their tinnitus. So I'll, I'll play different frequencies and try to kind of like window in on where I'm close. You know, I'll play 1,000 hertz and they'll say, oh, that's too low. No, that doesn't sound anything like it. They'll go up to 8,000 hertz. No, that's too high. So then you kind of bracket down from there. And it often correlates where there's a notch in their hearing. Not always. Um, again, I have normal hearing and I pitch match my 16,000 hertz, which you guys is such a terrible sound. <laughs> like it's such a high pitch, awful screech. Um, but I was just curious. Um, but it did. Uh, you know, I'm listening and, and at, at that part of my hearing, I am borderline normal. I almost have hearing loss. You know, so it was kind of interesting for me to see that. But so we can try to pitch match, but we can only do inter and octaves. So inter octaves and octaves. I can't test, you know, 73 hertz. I, I can't do that. Um, so I can get close and estimate where they're hearing it. And then what's kind of cool is I can estimate the loudness. So I can, you know, change, okay, I'm going to increase the volume at that pitch. I want you to tell me when you can't hear the tinnitus anymore. And that at least gives me a rough idea. Okay, it's 15 decibels loudness, which is not very loud, which is good. I tested it where someone was hearing it at 50 decibels. That's like as loud as a person's voice when they talk. That would be very, excuse me, very annoying. Now, with the hearing aids that I normally dispense, there are I believe, if I remember correctly, essentially nine different sounds that we can uh, put into the hearing aid. So it takes me a while to go through them and see if any of them work for anybody that can help cover up the ringing in the ears. Until they become so accustomed to it that they don't even notice the sound anymore. The idea behind doing Although that... Although it's not actually in the ears. Well, correct. But it generates a sound that is similar enough to the tinnitus that it's like it's covering it up. Exactly. Okay. Um, and... Uh, the the idea behind this from a behavioral therapy point of view is that if we can teach you not to listen to the ringing in your ears anymore, eventually you won't hear it anymore. So it's you basically get used to the the sound as it as if it were being produced auditorily. Right. Got exactly. It. So I'm wondering if I'm not sure if you know this, but if it's almost like it wears out the uh, the neural network that's associated with that. Um, I guess, experiencing that sound to the point where it almost becomes a little bit exhausted. And, Possibly. Okay. Yeah. I don't actually know, but I'd be interested if that's that's part of what's going on. And it's very possible that that is part of what's going on. All right. So this is a process called habituation in which constant exposure to some kind of stimulus event actually decreases our response to that stimulus event. So um, this is similar to how you would eventually stop noticing what your clothes feel like as they rest against your body, unless something said draws your attention to the sensation, just like we did here, or if it's excessively irritating. If you got like super itchy clothes or something, you might notice them even, even while like they're wool. there all day. Ryan's yeah, favorite shirts are all made yeah. of wool. <laughs> That's why they're so tight. I'm bringing, I'm bringing them to Florida with me. Come visit you. Another strategy is generally different types of therapy. Um, usually it's sort of talk therapy is what's most commonly used. Uh, it essentially mimics the process of the sound matching, the tinnitus retraining therapy, in which the therapist will work with the, the patient in this case to teach them to actually 
focus on noticing the sound until they habituate to it, until they stop noticing the sound. So it's a similar sort of idea. Again, works with some people, not everyone, but it's, it is a way that people have gone about, I guess, implementing treatment for this. That sounds stressful thing. <laughs> like I would, I would have a hard time focusing. Like I would, yeah. I would, that would, I would have a hard time with that particular therapy. And then you can do what's called broadband masking to see, you know, can I get to a volume and kind of a sound where you really don't perceive it very well and see if they can say, yeah, I, I don't hear it over that noise. You know, it'd be like this stuff of a fan running or, you know, kind of just that staticky noise. But anyways, that's how you would kind of try to diagnose. But we, we take people at their word, right? Because I cannot put them in MRI and there's a tennis. Nope, we can't see it. So it is all, you know, subjective for the most part to say, you have to tell me what, what you're hearing and all that. Great. I'd like to give you a minute if you want, if there are any myths about tinnitus you'd like to clarify and then any other closing thoughts you might have before I let you go. Sure. Um, I'd love to talk to you all day. <laughs> but, I you're uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you were a blast to talk to you. You do a great job sort of painting the picture. Oh, so. thank you. Um, um, yeah. So if you just end on that. Yeah, I would say um, one thing I want people to know. Is- now, of course, like most things, um, especially when the cause is not that well known and there are a few treatments, a lot of people will try and sell you a bunch of snake oil. S- Yes, just like that. That's not your tinnitus. That was a snake oil salesman. (laughs) Oftentimes, this is in the form of certain vitamins, supplements, oils, tinctures, things like that. Now, that's not to say that that none of those things have any place in medicine. Um, There are... Obviously, medicine is vast and includes a lot of those things, but uh, a lot of the the things around sort of like herbs and vitamins, there's not really a lot of evidence to support that those are effective for treatment, except maybe as a placebo. Well, first of all, you're going to see commercials all the time because tinnitus is a problem saying, take this pill, it's going to fix it. Uh, some people do report uh, having success to some of those things, but you know, it's pretty much like reporting it to anything else. And also because for a lot of people, tinnitus is a, a temporary thing. What might happen is they experience tinnitus, they drink tea and then their tinnitus goes away. And then they believe that the tea caused the tinnitus to go away, even though it was going to do so anyway. Now, again, that's not to say that these won't necessarily work. There's just not evidence right now to support those types of sort of treatments, if you will, um, as effective medicine to treat tinnitus. They don't work. It's not going to hurt you. They're mostly natural. You can try it if you want, but they're expensive, and it's it's really not going to work. You've got to you've got to accept that there's tinnitus and, and talk to an audiologist about it. Um, hearing aids and sound therapy are the two best options. Sound therapies, you have no hearing loss, right? You're going to hear tinnitus mostly in silence. Don't be in silence anymore. Now, noise exposure is not good. I'm not talking about go blast your ears, you know, with with headphones all day and, and just mask everything out. No. If you're home and you like to have the TV on when you're cooking dinner or whatever, because then you're not noticing it, great, do it. I don't care what you have to do. You've got to not be stressed by your tinnitus. Um, some people actually start meditation, yoga, whatever you can do to bring stress level down and just take your brain to focus on something else. You've got to start to trick the brain into like, okay, I know it's there stop paying attention to it. (laughs) And it can take years for people to do this. Some people, it can take a month, you know, everyone's different. And then the other thing, this is kind of a myth to go with it too. A lot of my patients say, well, I have hearing loss, but I have tinnitus. It's going to make my tinnitus worse. No, tinnitus is an internal sound. Hearing aids now have compression. They are not loud enough to damage your ears. They will compress the sound. You, You still can't go in loud noise. You know, you can give yourself hearing loss and tinnitus from noise, but the hearing aids will not do it. But hearing aids have actually been shown because they bring in external sound into the ear, it covers this. So it's stimulating the part of the brain that's hearing the phantom noise with something else. And so patients love having hearing aids when they have hearing loss and tinnitus because it actually makes it less 
noticeable. And then there's cases that's so extreme that audiologists can program a tinnitus setting where it actually plays white noise. You know, so if you are in silence and you just want to listen to something else, flip your hearing aids into it, listen to music. I mean, it's amazing. There's a lot of options, but there is no official cure. So that is good to know. Um, just do what you can to put the brain at ease. That's the best thing you can do. There's also biofeedback relaxation therapy that helps some people experience a more muted version of the tinnitus. So I'm not as familiar with that, though. I'm not as familiar as to what that looks like. Well, I mean, it's just it's just biofeedback. So having monitor on what your vital signs are and doing relaxation and that's it. And so you'll see that as you become better at sort of relaxing, you'll notice your heart rate drops a little bit and your breathing uh, reaches an even pace. And with feedback from being able to actually see what your heart rate and breathing pace and all those things are doing you can reach, reach that relaxed state. And for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure why, some people will then uh, report that the way that they're experienced, their, their tinnitus is just muted. It's like someone oh, turned down the volume okay. on it. So sort of like meditation in a way. Super interesting. Now, I've read that uh, for very severe cases, people have used cochlear implants. Uh, yeah, and we... We talked about that in the previous episode. The people, and I don't know this for sure, but I imagine that the people for whom that would be a candidate for that type of treatment, they would be experiencing profound deafness and also have tinnitus. And that would might be a circumstance under which it's possible that the cochlear implant would facilitate that. And there's some controversy around cochlear implants too. Like if you dig into the culture of the deaf community, there's some there's some pretty significant people that are that in that community that are very against it. So that might be a whole episode on its own. But it's something it's kind of interesting to see how people are pretty against it in that community. Yeah, there this is actually something that came up in our interview in our previous episode talking about how hearing works is that there are a lot of people in the deaf community who feel that they feel like their lives are fine the way that they are. And so they have a dislike for audiologists who they see as people who are trying to fix them when they don't feel like they aren't broken. And the audiologists that I know that I've spoken to really think of it's kind of shocking to them because sort of like, if you want to live with this as part of your life, that's fine. Um, if you want to increase that ability of yours so that you're perceiving the world in this other way, then we can help you with that. And if you don't, then like that's, that's your prerogative. Um, and so that there are people who would rather have something done to deal with a hearing loss. And there are people who, who don't, and there's no, wrong way to go about dealing with hearing loss if you have it. If you're born deaf and you are perfectly fine um, living your life with signs and you have a fulfilling life that way, then then great. Um, and uh, and the audiologists are like, yeah, that's you know that's yeah. the thing you want to do. Um, but I think that a lot of people in the, com- the deaf community m- might perceive that as people telling them that they're broken and they're like, mm-hmm. we're not broken. We just don't, <laughs> we just don't have that particular sense. The other interesting thing there that I resonate with is you can, have others be making those decisions for you at a younger age. Oh, and sure. Later on, right when you're you're independent on your own, et cetera. As these cultural sort of things change, now you'll have a different perception on how that was, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we're starting to see that more in certain therapies, uh, kind of pop up. At least I see some of it on social media and, yeah. and whatnot. So. Yeah. And I don't want to say that either side of this is wrong. I think you know they they may perceive this in whatever way they perceive it. It's just to say that. There are going to be people who want to have something done about hearing loss, and there are going to be people who don't. And that's just simply a choice that you make. And audiologists are the people who help you deal with that choice if you do want to do something about it. Right. And so that's that's essentially how I think I would yeah. approach that. Okay, so this is a spoiler alert for anybody who is watching the show Castle Rock or wants to watch the show Castle Rock. This uh, segment contains some information about some of the plot points about Castle Rock 
the TV show that's on Hulu. So if you don't want to hear any of this, then skip ahead about a minute and five seconds or so. It's also a little bit speaking to what you said to bring in the nice pop culture reference that I like to do is that there's a show on, uh, I think it's on Hulu right now, only called Castle Rock based off of some Stephen King story. And, uh, and there's a couple of characters on there who they seem to be experiencing something that's like very intense tinnitus and they, they call it the voice of God. And now I don't know if they're, if what they're experiencing is supposed to actually be written as tinnitus in the book, but that seems to be how they sort of describe it. And they specifically deafen themselves by damaging their hearing so that they have a more intense experience of it. Um, and I just thought that was a, an interesting, an interesting take on this. Cause that, that actually might work if you were to specifically damage your hearing, you might then experience tinnitus. And if you are perceiving this as being something that is valuable to you, uh, then, um, that I guess that would make sense for you to do that. Although I generally would recommend not doing ser- yeah, severe damage to your body. <laughs> yeah. Disclaimer, don't deafen yourself. Yeah. yeah. We are not. We are not. Yeah, advising to deafen yourself. Uh, really. So okay. There's there's some other treatments for tinnitus, including medications like a few anxiety medications and steroids have been shown to be effective. And I think that kind of wraps us up on that, right? Yeah, and important to say that they're it's effective for some people. This doesn't work for everyone. Science is still being done on the profile of person who's going to respond to this kind of treatment, but it is out there. Have either of you heard of auditory processing disorder before? I have. I have two. And what what what's your level of familiarity? Like, what do you what do you know about it? I'm pretty darn uninformed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Ryan's boat on that one. That's I mean I've heard it and I've I've spent some time in like the deaf community, but this is I as I understand it's a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the boat. Let's hop over to the other boat and learn today. Okay. Great. <laughs> I was gonna say I've done some clinical practice in which I was on a team or working with somebody or there was someone in the class that had some sort of auditory processing disorder, and there was always a speech language pathologist that was there to just basically, I would hand off materials and ideas, and then I would learn. That was it. (laughs) Sure. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And I worked with a gal who had uh, a challenge where she had a hard time. I guess it was more like she couldn't hone in on certain sounds. So like, she always had a problem if there were too many different sounds in the same environment. Um, she couldn't really pinpoint a single sound or, and she would have a lot of uh, challenging behavior around that. So it's kind of interesting to see because it was, it was never, it was never like loud noises. She can go and listen to like eye of the tiger in her room without having any issue. She would turn up her radio as loud as she could. But anytime there were more than one sound going on that were like a little elevated, she would have a really hard time with that. Interesting. And that was in that she had a diagnosis of auditory processing disorder specifically. Uh, so somewhere in there, she had a lot of neurological challenges okay. and, um, you know, a lot of, a lot to do with her frontal lobe or temporal lobe, a lot of stuff going on there. So there was, it was, a, she had a lot of issues or challenges surrounding perception. Interesting. So it was perception of sounds, perception of spatial awareness. So, but that was one of the things that we noticed was that it was a lot of different noises tended to be a significant trigger for her problems. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. We have two things to talk about, tinnitus and auditory processing disorder. And I think this is a great format to to discuss both of them because they're both, they're not actually not that closely related, but they're both inside of this domain of sort of weird stuff that happens that gets in the way of of hearing and and understanding with hearing. So, All right. So let's shift gears into auditory processing disorder. You're going to have to do some of the heavy lifting here and inform us. 
All right. So let's start with just what is auditory processing disorder? Right. And that's a great question. It's kind of difficult to understand, but essentially it's a disorder that affects one's ability to understand speech sounds primarily, um, also called central auditory processing disorder. Yeah. So I did some research on it because I currently don't test or treat central auditory processing disorder. It's a very niche area of audiology. In fact, there is one woman, one doctor in Denver, and I work in Colorado Springs, which is about an hour from Denver, that we send those patients that we're concerned about to her because she's kind of the, the specialist in the area. But that just gives you an idea. Colorado, you know, pretty populated area, big cities, um, and there's basically one person that we, we send these people to um, because it is kind of a, it's niche, but it's also, um, I, I could see it being convoluted with other things. So it's, it's kind of a hard one. So I'm going to kind of go through some of the behavioral things you might see and wonder, but then I'm going to talk about it could be these other things too that would exhibit the exact same <laughs> same thing. So it's hard. And could you define it first as well? Oh yeah, I mean the way that I would define it per- personally, it is truly a difficulty processing sound. I mean it's very simple. It's a person saying, "I can't hear well if there's noise. I can't localize sound. I I can't process speech or I respond incorrectly. They say something and I say something else." There's a lot of things that this could show up for in different ways for, for various people. But a common example that I hear is you might ask someone a question and they give you a completely unrelated statement in response. So I might say, uh, what are you going to do after this? And you might say, uh, pizza's cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and even that might be more related than the response you get. They might say something like, you may only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of sort of like the joke of like having a having a drink with a really old person who's going senile at a bar and they give you these responses like you may as well not even be there. Lamp. <laughs> and a lot of times these people have totally normal hearing. There's no hearing loss going with it. So this is at the neurological level. Absolutely. Yes. And that's kind of what the testing does. And I'll go through that. Again, I don't do the testing, but I'll kind of explain, I think, what they're trying to test with what they do um, to say, is there something in the brain that's going on? So they do know that, you know, they call it central auditory processing disorder because they have seen that it's linked to our central auditory nervous system. So it's not the ears. It's, you know, you could have hearing loss theoretically. And then if you have auditory processing disorder, it's going to make it harder. Um, But there are tons of people with normal hearing and auditory processing disorders. Then we kind of know, okay, this is a central issue. This is something, you know, from that pathway of the ears up to the brain, there's a lesion. There's something wrong. Something is not matching up correctly. So people, like I said, they're going to have difficulty localizing. They might respond inappropriately. So you say something and they respond back and you go, did you, did you hear what I said? They might not do well with multiple tasks. So you, you give them, I don't know, something to do with three things to do. And they might remember one of them. You're kind of going, you know, huh, why are you not able to, you know, follow these three simple steps or whatever it was. They may have trouble learning new things or new languages, spelling, grammar problems, you know, all going to, are they not hearing a sound correctly? What's going on? They're usually poor musically. They struggle with like prosody and sarcasm. So they might not they don't understand the intonations, the different ways you say things and may not understand at all a sarcastic tone, that kind of thing. Fast talkers can be harder for them. You know, they need to signal more simple and slower. Um, and then background noise is always harder. Again, that it's harder for normal hearing and normal processing. So add something else that's wrong. Background noise is going to make it even harder. Now, 
that sounds like a lot of things going on that could be other things. <laughs> One could be just hearing loss, right? I have tons of hearing loss patients that say these things to me. Another is a learning disability, ADHD, and autism. So that probably, you know, rings true to you saying, well, yeah, I have, you know, kids that have autism can struggle with some of these things too. They may not understand sarcasm or they may not understand, you know, or be able to do multiple things that you ask them to do, you know, whatever it would be. So that's where it kind of like convolutes a little bit where you're going, okay, is this auditory processing? Is it something else? Is it all of it? And that's hard. And it could be everything. You know, they could have hearing loss. They could have um, autism. They could have, you know, a brain lesion from a head injury. It's, it could be many things. All right. So then what causes it? Okay. Okay. So then I'm going to go into some of the causes of what can happen. One is aging. And that's a hard one because I don't, I don't know that they do in audiology, but you know, it's very fair to say if an 80 year old comes in, they're going to have some change in their central auditory nervous system. It's, it's going to happen from aging. And so then it's fair to say they're not going to process sound as well as well as they used to. So they are going to have a harder time in noise. They are not going to under, I hear it all the time. I cannot understand my grandson. He talks so fast. They cannot process the fast signals as well anymore. So that's just kind of, okay, we know that that's correlating with a wear and tear on the auditory system at the central level in the brain. There can be genetic issues. Um, that's going to go more into neurological things that could have happened. If they were born prematurely, that can be a problem. If they were deprived of oxygen when they were born, anoxia, um, that's going to be, a, you know, that can result in brain issues, which makes sense. Prenatal drug exposure, low birth weight, those are just a couple of things that they've been able to show can then cause issues at the brain level and the development of um, that baby. So then their auditory system may not develop correctly. So auditory deprivation, just meaning you're not getting the signal that you should. There are kids who have ear infections and we kind of call them asymptomatic. So the parents aren't really sure, you know, they're one or two, they're not really talking yet. They don't cry, they don't mess with their ears. You know, they've never seen anything wrong with their ears, but they could theoretically have had fluid in their ears for months, but it's not painful. So the kid can't tell you that. They're not hearing, so therefore they have been deprived of sound and sound is what helps our auditory system develop. So how, you know, our ears want the sound to go up those pathways I was talking about, to cross over here, cross over there, go to this part of the brain, go to that part of the brain. If they had an ear infection for months and months and months when they're younger, they didn't get that stimulation. They could theoretically have a processing disorder as they get older because they never, those connections are not as strong as they should have been. And then other things, brain injury, strokes, multiple sclerosis, um, heavy metals, lesions in your nervous system, it, it makes sense, right? It's going to cut those pathways. It's going to affect the brain's ability to um, process that, seizures, that kind of thing. Those can all result in auditory processing issues. And then of course, just remember hearing loss can, can make it even worse. The main, just as a, a side note, the main people that would be involved, you know, there, there should be hopefully audiologists in the area to check for this if everything else has been exhausted and we just don't know. Um, and then speech language pathologists are very helpful in the treatment of it to kind of get them into therapy to help teach them ways to hear better and language and all of that, just as a side note. So how does this get diagnosed? What's the process there? Okay. So there are a battery of tests that go along with a diagnosis. A lot of times they're going to look for specific responses to questions. So looking for that sort of answering with a coherent response. Uh, they're going to do some perception tests. Uh, let's do some repeats sort of thing. So repeat what I just said. So I don't do any of the testing. I kind of remember it from graduate school. There's these very interesting, they're put in a sound booth. We're always going to do the hearing test first. 
then they have all these tests. They're going to be asked to do different tasks. So for example, one I remember is it's going to flip flop ears and it's going to be like six numbers, you know, seven, eight, two, three, one, eight. You have to repeat that. If there's a lesion, that patient cannot do that because it's flip-flopping, it's crossing. They're going to remember some of the some of the uh, numbers and not be able to repeat it. Whereas, you know, for someone else, it'd be a pretty simple task to just say six numbers you just heard or however many they do. They do a series of that to test, you know, one part of the brain. They do something with temporal processing. So the timing of a signal, again, it's going to be, they're always going to have to listen to something and then repeat what the, the instructions told them to do. There's one definitely with noise. They're going to try to ask them to extract speech from a, a noisy signal. And because I don't treat this or test it, I don't remember how they determine, but it does seem very well researched that, you know, there is a specific test battery and certain scores or results are, are pretty clearly defined as showing, you know, there is something in the auditory pathway that is not functioning correctly. So it at least gives you an idea where I don't know that it would be particularly misdiagnosed very often. Maybe it could be misconstrued as something else, you know, where they just have a processing disorder, but someone thought that they had ADHD. I don't, I don't know. I don't treat any of that. It tends to start with some caregiver is noticing that they're whoever the usually kid, but it can be anybody really. Um, so let's, let's thinking specifically about a child that they notice that they seem to not understand things that are said to them, although they might, they understood they're being spoken to. And so an audiologist is going to look for uh, something that they call a figure ground problem. And that's when the child can't pay attention specifically if they're distracted by like a noisy environment and they just seem to really have a really hard time focusing on things. There's also something called an auditory memory problem. If they uh, really struggle with remembering simple instructions that were given to them, lists, directions, instructions, or if it seems really, really delayed. Um, another one that was sort of similar to maybe the example that we gave is this uh, discrimination, auditory discrimination issue. When they have trouble hearing the difference between words, this also would look similar to dyslexia. So if I if I said something like boat, they might hear coat, and that that sort of process can happen. This can also show up in terms of their uh, reading, spelling, writing. Again. Well, I'll get into some of the other thoughts I've had around this after this. Another one is their auditory attention spans. This is very similar to the other ones in the sense that it looks like the child just has a really hard time staying focused on anything that they're working on or some requirement that they have or demand that's been placed. And then the last one is the auditory um, cohesion problem. And this is uh, really draw people who struggle seeming to draw inferences from conversations. They don't really understand jokes and riddles. They have trouble doing sort of verbal logic tasks that might include things like math or sort of um, higher level problem solving stuff that really requires just the verbal skills. And so it looks like they have trouble just sort of comprehending what's going on at the languaging level. Okay. Now, when I first heard about all of this, I had a bit of skepticism. Yeah, the skepticism flags like waving hard. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Because when you look at this and you see when I give you something you don't perform well on it, the first thing that 
that shows up is, is this a skill deficit, right? We tend to always ask the first question, the first two questions is, is this a can't do or a won't do? Mm -hmm. Meaning, is this a something that you, you don't know how to do what I'm asking yeah. you to do? You never would be able to do it, no matter how much motivation is on the table. Exactly. I'm like, if I gave you a, a trillion dollars right now Woo. to juggle five chainsaws, could you do it? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be the last thing I do, but I will do it. <laughs> Family Worth it. life. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so it's like one of those things where none of us are, are jugglers, I don't think, and or at least not to the point where we can juggle five yeah, running chainsaws. Did you say three. jugglers or juggalos? <laughs> <laughs> either, I think. Yeah, either. I don't think we're either of those things. <laughs> yeah. And so the, no amount of incentive would work, but there might sometimes it's the case that like they could do it. Maybe it's really hard, but they can do it. You just need the right amount of motivation um, to sort of incentivize that sort of thing. And so looking at these things, those are the first questions I'm going to ask is, is this a can't do? And if it's a can't do, then all you need to do is build those skills. Some kids, they just need a little bit more work on some things than other kids do when they're learning certain skills. Some kids have a harder time with math. Some kids have a harder time with reading. Some kinds have a harder time with logic stuff. And so sometimes you just need to build those skills. And then it seems like the magical processing disorder seems to go away as the thing that was stopping them from learning because they just, for whatever reason, that's just something that they struggle with a little bit or it wasn't taught very well in the first place to them. Maybe they were not paying attention in class the day that those sorts of things were gone over. Who knows? And then the other thing, as I mentioned, is the motivation thing is have is the motivation been sufficiently supplemented such that we would expect that this would occur? And it both of the or all of these assessments seem to as far as I can tell, they don't seem to have considered either of those two questions before going into. The assumption seems to be, you have auditory processing disorder, how can I show that with a test? That, that seems to be how it's approached. Now, that being said, there does seem to be some evidence, some emerging evidence that has showed, neurologically speaking, with MRIs and that sort of thing, brain scans and whatnot, that auditory processing disorder, that, that people with this do show very different uh, responses to common words and patterns and that sort of thing than other people do. There are also just their, their behavior is so blatantly different and sort of weird. As I said, if I ask you like, um, Hey, what's your name? And you said like, I don't, have a computer. Um, <laughs> I'm going to look at this and be like, that's, that's pretty different from what I, I might expect that some of those do really seem to suggest that there seems to be at least something going on, you know, and it's just, it's just not clear. And I, based on sort of the evidence and research that I did and, and the uh, interview that I got with Dr. Greenhouse, it does seem that uh, th there are people are, are fairly convinced this is a legitimate thing that's going on, but it's, it's emerging and a lot of work needs to be done to understand what it is and how it works. And they certainly need to rule out those uh, can't do, won't do things before jumping to the biological hypothesis that it's just something wrong. And we don't know what it is, but it's something. Yeah. You know what I mean? That medical model is just always creeping in there, it seems like. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like I understand why, too, yeah, because same. it's yeah, it, it works. You know, it's a, the medical triage model is a great way of going about uh, dealing with things that happen. The medical like. For a broken arm, we know that we can take the tissue that's broken and fix it. Uh, for certain neurological disorders, we, we know that there is damaged tissue in here. We can do surgery and fix it. And the effects of this are immediate, they're profound, and they work. And I get it. And some of these other things like this that are new and they're not super well-defined and they're not that well-understood, 
I just don't know. And I think that it's good to be have that really conservative estimate of like, let's rule out the the behavioral factors, the environmental factors, and then go to what needs to happen or, or how do we understand this better in terms of uh, how we approach this from a therapeutic standpoint and uh, and what those biological factors might be, what the causes are, that sort of thing. So, all right. Some other questions I think that people want to know how common this is. It's about 5% of children, it sounds like, right? In school age. Yeah, which is kind of a lot and kind of not a lot at the same time. You're talking about 95% of people are not going to have this experience. I think 5% is probably on the upper end of that. The hypothesis of the people that are studying this, their understanding and like interpretation of this is that kids with this condition just can't process in similar ways that other children do. And that's like the underlying root assumption here, right? Yeah. Right. And essentially like kind of what they're saying is like that there's a breakdown in the connection between their ears and their brains, right? Like, so there's like kind of like some damaged pathway or some kind of deficit in that, right? Incomplete pathway between the two. Which we know from the different brain scan episodes and stuff that we've done here that A, it's really hard to even practically get one of those in the first place. True. B, the results of them can be kind of tricky. And then C, implementing those at a scale for these 5% of children is not happening. So where do, what do we go from here, I guess? Yeah, and I mean, one of the places that this tends to show up is you have a, a kid who... If you're in a, like a classroom environment, for example, and you have a, a child or student in this environment who is just they seem to really have struggle with comprehending and understanding and, and they don't follow instructions and that sort of thing. And it doesn't, at least on the surface, seem to be a motivation issue or a skill deficit. Again, at least on the surface, I don't think it's ever actually been ruled out for sure. So you might think, okay, maybe they have a hearing. There's some kind of uh, hearing impairment that we need to test for because if they're not understanding me, it could be because they're not actually getting the sound. So under a, a hearing test, when they're mostly responding to beeps and tones and that sort of thing, they show up to have perfectly normal hearing. And if that's the case, then the next step, I believe, as I understand it, is maybe this is not a toy processing. They can hear, but they don't seem to understand. They don't have any other diagnosis that we're aware of that would account for this. Maybe this is auditory processing disorder, I think, is where the step went to after that. So, again, I do have that sort of skeptical flag, and I also understand logically why that may have been the next thing that they went to, yeah. and I get the sort of the the model. I definitely don't want it to sound like you know parents who have a child who has auditory processing disorder, or people who are adults who have the diagnosis of auditory processing disorder, to say like, yeah, you're all made up. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that for a lot of these individuals and for the overall description of this, mostly what I'm saying is it's not well known, and what I'm saying is I would like to know if there is some portion of this that would rule out those other things. So um, again, there we, they don't really know what could affect this. Um, I mentioned earlier that there was the uh, head trauma or that could affect development. Um, there's also some hypotheses that suggest lead poisoning or even chronic ear infections could affect this. It's just, it's mostly unknown entirely. And when you look at the symptoms that could be reported and linked to this, there are so many, I understand that as well. Uh, right. There's things like loud or sudden noises, being sensitive to those noisy environments, maybe being upsetting the performance in quieter versus louder settings, understanding following directions, whether they're simple or complicated, understanding reading, spelling, writing, any sort of speech or language difficulties fall under that verbal and word mouth problems, like the, the word problems that we have when it comes to math. Yeah. All of these are fair game, right? To potentially be something that would trigger, oh, this might be a symptom of one of these two disorders. And when you're talking about all of that, it's like, 
that's a lot of scenarios. That's yeah. a lot to sort through. And we're talking about science and research here. That is an obscene number of conditions to start to research and understand. Yeah, I mean it's 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 quite a it's quite an undertaking to get this developed, and it's fairly recent that it's been around. So we can say as much as we know about it now, and and always raise those other issues, and just know that like there's this is something that's still being done. Mostly, I mean, I did want to bring this to people's attention because I think a lot of people maybe have heard about it but don't know that much about it. And so being able to really do a deep dive on what's going on here. And now, fortunately for those children, even though there's not that much known, uh, there there are some people who have taken steps to implement some treatments for this. According to some descriptions, uh, most people. I guess the general agreement is that the auditory system doesn't really fully develop until 15. So if this is something that can be dealt with by addressing the auditory system itself, such as speech language therapy and uh, other verbal behavior targeted therapies, assisted listening devices and um, hearing aids, that sort of thing, that can potentially help uh, with uh, building that comprehension of speech sounds in that window of time. Therapy is going to be treatment. They're going to see a speech language pathologist. Um, I don't know that the audiologist does all of the training. I'm going to say they probably diagnose more of it and then would send them to speech language pathologists. There's tons of online treatments too, which is really great nowadays to get people to actually do a treatment rather than have to go into an office all the time where it's it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier where they do that online training to have to do a task and it's going to get harder and harder. Um, it's the same idea. Can we strengthen the pathway? In some cases, you might not be able to. You know, if they had a seizure disorder and, you know, there's a lesion in the hemispheres of their brain, something's going on, that's going to be a struggle for them forever, I would imagine. But the brain is amazing. Like we've talked about, it's very plastic. It can learn many new things. It can reroute things. So I would imagine, again, the younger you are, you know, the better you could compensate. Whereas if this is just age-related degeneration or you get multiple sclerosis in your 50s or 60s, whatever, you know, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to improve that. Did I answer most of the question? <laughs> yeah. More important to me about any kind of diagnostic test is whether that leads to any kind of prescription for for treatment, because I I tend to, to say yeah. like there are a lot there are millions and millions of tests that are out there, and so many of them will lead to a diagnosis of some kind that does not inform any kind of intervention okay. and to me that is a pointless test of course and so um yeah i wanted to know um the extent to which there was if there was some way of measuring performance having this as a diagnostic tool for for whatever might be going on and that leading to some kind of intervention that leads to an improvement for that particular individual so that's where i would come from i would say it's very strong then for cap it's it's I literally think it's five, six tests, period. There's not, you know, hundreds of tests to choose from. They are very specific, very researched. These are what can help show us. And if this is the problem, then this is what we want them to do. And, you know, I love that about audiology too, is we, we're not doing medicines. We don't do it. It's, it's therapies. It's, you know, nothing's going to hurt the patient. Nothing's going to be overprescribed to just treat something that, oh, it looks like this. So just take this. No, never. We can't even do that. Um, you know, so it's, it can never hurt, right? I'm sure I could even benefit from some kind of training of the brain to hear better in certain environments. So it, it can really only be a positive thing, hopefully, for that person who is struggling and just trying to strengthen the brain pathway for the, for the system. 
You have those systems, I mean, generally working on these skills, these sort of higher executive functioning skills are things that people can can attempt to do. Uh, there are something called a uh, frequency modulation system is a, a type of assistive listening device. And that it, it works sort of similar to a hearing aid in a way. It's really intended to sort of target certain sounds and make them louder and then um, reduce background noise. Um, without that device, a similar recommendation is simply to, to put a child in a less noisy environment to have them try and have fewer noises to try and focus on, getting eye contact when you're speaking to them, um, using simple sentence structure, that sort of thing. So, I mean, these are just general recommendations. And another, I guess another consideration inside of this is that for a lot of these kids, like they're hearing these words being thrown at them and they don't, if it is the case that they're not really understanding what's being said, that can be really frustrating. This would also be true for a child who has any other intellectual disability or diagnosis that if you're speaking over their head, they, and they can't react to you appropriately, it can be really frustrating for them. And so just to keep that in mind and to work at what level you need to be at in order to help them be successful in those environments. So one thing that we haven't mentioned that I think is worthwhile is uh, if you're in the United States, this is eligible for a 504 plan, right? Mm -hmm. So there are resources out there available for students that experience this. Right. Yeah. Most of the other strategies around dealing with this that don't involve necessarily direct therapy, speech language therapy, that sort of thing, they tend to be other manipulations of the environment to try and facilitate this that involve things like encouraging good um, organizational behaviors, encouraging healthy regular routines and habits around eating and sleeping, encouraging or uh, having your uh, child when they're in class, for example, sit close to the front of the classroom, make sure the the classroom is quiet, reduce the number of distractions, uh, have other devices that can record the class and so that they can be reviewed at a later time, and then just really be sort of constantly monitoring their progress so that you can be in support of that uh, child as they go through this sort of system. So a lot of this information, I want to give credit where credit is due, uh, was from the Kids Health Organization. Um, if you go to kidshealth.org, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you'll find a lot of the things that we talked about inside of, inside of this, and they'll have a lot of other recommendations and resources there as well. Which... Have we talked about analyzing things on an individual level, like specifically what goes into that on this yet? I don't think we have because okay. we did talk about when we when we discussed doing case studies. Yeah, we talked about uh, what the single or uh, single subject design studies, but we weren't we didn't actually discuss that how, the methodology for that and the logic, like the scientific yeah. logic okay. behind that process. So that's definitely something that should go on the list as well. Yeah, it'd be nice to reference because then when we talk about things like this, we can also point to, you know, here's how you can start to have an understanding of whether or not this is actually working for you. Yeah, right. it's a great point. Or you can bring it to the professionals, right? Like that disclaimer <laughs> it needs to be added in there too. Those professionals can help you understand the situation. What yeah. are the important points that we want to have people walk away with? So I'd say my understanding from learning, thank you for all the opportunities here, is that this is an area that is pretty prominent. A lot of people experience this, but we don't understand a lot of the specifics. Intinnitus or auditory processing disorder? Ooh, auditory processing disorder is okay. one that. I would say the opposite about tinnitus. We understand quite a bit in there, it sounds like. Yeah, uh, not as much about, I guess, why the experience happens. Because again, it happens not in the ears, but in the brain. You can destroy the ears and people will hear, they'll experience the like ringing sound. 
and why it's chronic for some people. But but yeah, you're right. I think that there definitely is a lot more known about tinnitus than there is about auditory processing disorder for sure. Yeah, and I think another thing just to consider too is that there are therapies out there to treat this stuff, but there's nothing that's like a foolproof, this is the cure-all. There's stuff out there that has helped the symptoms or maybe helped reduce the, the noise or, or, you know, something to that degree, but nothing that's been like a kind of like that magic pill, right? Like that, that like there's no magic wand that somebody can wave over and say like, it is fixed. Yeah. And be on, and on that note, I think be on the lookout for snake oil salesmen who are going to try and tell you that their one thing will cure everything and that it will definitely cure it. And that it's some, you know, untested grapefruit juice or something that will distilled in a bottle of scotch. I have no idea what it would be, but, um, that, you know, whatever their, their homemade <laughs> remedy is, that's going to cure your, uh, be skeptical. You know, that's, that's the generally the recommendation I make about most things, especially around medicine. You did create a perfect mix there to make a very expensive item that you could <laughs> fake and make a ton of margin on. Right. Just like the great the, juice distilled in very expensive scotch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that, a uh, hot dog water they sold at some event in like California, I think. You guys hear about that? No. Oh, man. So it was someone who was specifically, as far as I know, like making fun of the industry around asparagus water and whatever water they're going to do where it was. Uh, I think the one that Whole Foods tried to do was like it was literally just a glass of water with a stick of asparagus in it. And yeah. They were selling it for, what, $8 or something like that? Something insane like that. And so this person was trying to do that exact uh, as far as I know, again, they were sort of trying to make fun of that culture of like ridiculous things and end up like making a killing selling hot dog water, even though they were like, this is a sham. And people are like, I'll take it. And <laughs> bought a whole bunch of it. So it's, this it just cracks me up. Anyway, awesome. uh, going back to the points about the episode. Yeah, these are tinnitus specifically. Like this can be a thing that really, really that people struggle with a lot. Uh, the reactions that people can have can be really, really severe. And if you are having those reactions, like find a therapist, go out there and, you know, call somebody, talk to somebody, uh, look for help because there there are ways to deal with this in terms of therapy. Uh, there are ways to deal with this in terms of uh, the, the whole pitch matching thing we talked about for some people, medication for some people that be able to go out there and get help because it doesn't need to be something that is crippling for you. And another take home point is uh, I think just to echo some of the things that you guys said that uh, there's not a lot that's known about these things that is still being researched and is poorly understood. Um, I think I understand more about it now than when, you know, in researching and preparing for this episode, but there's something I've been around quite a bit being in a field where I work with people who have oftentimes multiple diagnoses and, and disabilities. And so uh, most of the stuff I could sort of just write in, but definitely had to, to learn some more important things about some of the specific definitions and stuff of that nature. And, and some of the causes I didn't, I didn't know all, all of them, but that's uh that's sort of the the state of where science is at, and so hopefully uh, you you learned something during this that was useful, and I, I look forward to if there's any fantastic breakthroughs or updates, we'll definitely do an episode to catch up on what's happened in the research in these areas. But it's important I think to understand how these things impact people psychologically speaking, and that that affects why they do what they do, and uh, accounts for some of the issues that can come up that make it seem like. I, I don't know, I guess life can be hard, you know, and, and more so for people who uh, suffer from, from these afflictions. I'm somewhat sad that you beat me to the why we do what we do. I win. You win. It's like a first. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. All right. Anything else, Shane? Nope. I think that wraps it up for me. 
All right. Perfect. All right. Well, if you have any other questions, feedback, or uh, clarifications you'd like to add, if you have auditory processing disorder or tinnitus and would like to write in and get your story read, or just tell us and you can tell us not to read your story, feel free to do that. Info at WWD, WWD podcast, and then all the other social medias you can hear about at the end of this episode. So yes. uh, thanks for listening. This has been Abraham and Ryan O and Shane. We are out. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. 